This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big news. My favorite bubble tea place that I drive like 20 minutes out of the way to is opening a location 1.2 miles from my house. I was watching a TikTok and the guy was like, you know the way to a woman's heart? It's not buying her dinner. It's not opening doors. It's bubble tea. Wait, that is so true. (laughs) And how random, but yes. (laughs) God, I want one right now. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. I forgot my line. (laughs) And I'm MoGab, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. I definitely have a stranger-than-fiction type story for you today. Ooh, is this nosy with the light on? Uh, uh, yeah, I'd say this is a little nosy with the light on. I am going to tell you about the mysterious death of Rebecca Zahau. Don't know her. I kind of want to give a content warning. This deals with suicide, potentially, and it does deal with the death of a child also. Okay, when I I asked if this was a nosy with the light on... (laughs) I did not anticipate you to follow it up with those two items, which are definitely (laughs) not for nosy people that don't want to sleep with the light on. Yeah. All right. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Our definition of nosy with the light on is very different. Mine and yours. Well, since you don't fall into that category, you don't get to label us. Okay. That's true. So you can't ask me if this is nosy with the light on. I don't know. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. 
My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Creepers. So this all took place in the summer of 2011 on Coronado Island, which is a peninsula a mile or two off the coast of San Diego. It's this like quintessential small town, very low crime rate, like the most common crime there is bike theft. It's gorgeous, but it's very small. So there's not a lot of real estate. So like the minimum you're paying for a house there is going to be about $2 million. It's like a quintessential small town for very rich people. I'm sorry. I was just daydreaming about my summer 2011. I was in Costa Rica. Okay. Don't even. Nope. Don't follow it up with where you are. No one cares. (laughs) I hope your ass was at home. 2011. I wasn't doing anything. I was. (gasps) You beat me. 2011 wasn't a good year. (laughs) <laughs> I'll mark that down in my journal. All right. So it started on July 11th, 2011. That day, Dina Shacknai started getting some really disturbing texts from her ex-husband, Jonah. The text said that their six-year-old son, Max, had had a terrible accident. <gasps> He'd fallen down the stairs. He was gravely injured. And he asked her to meet him at the children's hospital. And it was via text? Yeah, via text. Oh, you better pick up that phone. Dina and Jonah were divorced, but they had joint custody, and their divorce had been pretty bitter in the beginning, but things had really smoothed out between the two of them, and they were really doing their best to get along and just make sure that Max was taken care of. Jonah had even bought Dina her own house on Coronado so she could spend her summers there with Max and the rest of the family. Hmm. Jonah Shacknai was the self-made billionaire founder of Medicis Pharmaceuticals, which is a cosmetic pharmaceutical company. Like they make Restylane, which is an alternative to Botox. And they're the largest independent dermatology company in the United States. He sold the company a year later in 2012 for $2.6 billion. Feel free to send any sample products. Your girl is breaking (laughs) out. The company is based in Phoenix, where Jonah lives for most of the year. But he has a summer place in Coronado called the Spreckles Mansion. It's right on Ocean Boulevard. I know. (laughs) <laughs> you had like little bunny bunny scrunch face. Yeah, bunny scrunch. Hmm. I've heard this so many times I forget how weird the name is. <laughs> just made by me turn my nose up. It was called the Spreckles Mansion. It was right on Ocean Boulevard, beachfront home. It's 27 rooms. And the documentary I watched called it one of the most beautiful and grand mansions in the entire country. 27 rooms? That includes everything. That includes, it's got 10 bedrooms, 11 bathrooms, and then I'm sure they, they're counting kitchens and living rooms. In okay, there too. 10 bedrooms. 
Our sorority mm-hmm. house held less than that. I can't think of 10 people I'd want to Our sorority in. house was not a mansion. Well, I know. <laughs> well, hey. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Yes. I Listen, girl, I'm aware. I even had the nicest room in that house. That's and true. No. It was not a mansion. Still not a mansion. I did look it up on Zillow, and it estimates that it's worth about $13 million. So Dina gets to the children's hospital. She's maybe expecting some broken bones or something. She sees that Max is on a ventilator with tubes all over him in a medically induced coma. I can't get over this was via text. Like, I know. I didn't even think about that. There was severe trauma from the fall, and he was having residual complications. Doctors were saying Max might have even had a heart attack. So immediately, Dina has questions. How did this happen? What happened? What's going on? And she finds out that Jonah wasn't even home when Max fell. He'd been taking his two older kids, Ethan and Gabby, to the airport to go see their mom, his first wife. And then he went to the gym a few blocks from the house. Max had been in the care of Jonah's 32-year-old live-in girlfriend, Rebecca Zahau, at the time of the fall. And Dina was pissed when she found this out. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Max is how old again? Six. Okay. But, oh, but, he, okay, but he's with the girlfriend. At first, I'm like, he's at home by himself. Okay, six. But not like he's a with toddler. The girlfriend. Okay. No, not a toddler. So this is the story that Dina gets. Max was home with Rebecca and Rebecca's younger sister, Zena, who was 13 and visiting her for summer break. Zena was the only other person in the house at the time of the accident. Rebecca was in the bathroom downstairs telling Zena to take a shower while Max was upstairs playing. She heard a terrible noise, and she came running into the foyer where she saw, sprawled on the floor by the staircase, <gasps> Max next to his racer scooter and the shattered chandelier. <gasps> like he came, not down. like down the stairs, like off a balcony. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. I just got so nauseous. I'm going to vomit. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm going to be sick. <gasps> oh. Get a bucket. <laughs> you bitch. <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, See, my nosy with the light on, much different than yours. Yeah. Oh, my God. So Rebecca called Jonah, blubbering and just completely unintelligible. And Jonah raced home from the gym just in time to see medics loading Max into an ambulance. At the hospital, Dina is frustrated and terrified and looking for someone to blame. Rebecca had been in charge of Max this morning. This had happened under her nose while she was in charge. And what was he doing playing so close to the staircase? Her family was all pointing fingers at Rebecca. And Jonah was saying, you know, instead of blaming her, you should be thanking her because she gave him CPR and saved his life. He would have died without that. Mm. I'm not there yet. (laughs) But Rebecca was also having a really hard time. She was distraught. She was so upset about what happened with Max. She told her older sister, Mary, that she didn't know what to do. She said multiple times, Dina is going to kill me. An investigation was launched immediately with the Coronado Police Department. They tried to get a statement from Rebecca, but she wasn't very forthcoming with details. She just said she didn't know anything. He'd been playing upstairs, and then she just ran out to find him like that. She said Max only said one word to her, which was Ocean, the name of their dog. So investigators start to look into the relationship between Rebecca and Jonah. 
A few months after Jonah separated from Dina, he met Rebecca at an eye clinic in Phoenix. How old is Jonah? Jonah's 54 at this time. Rebecca is 32. I am struggling. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a few months after Jonah separated from Dina, he met Rebecca at an eye clinic in Phoenix. He went in for an exam, and she was the licensed eye specialist that took care of him. And they clicked right away. Jonah thought she was beautiful, and he loved her upbeat personality. Mm. Rebecca was originally from Burma, which was renamed to Myanmar in the late 80s, mm -hmm. country in Southeast Asia. Her family was very poor, like all four siblings slept in one room. And her parents became born-again Christians, and they raised their kids in the church at a time when there was a lot of Christian persecution under a dictatorship regime in Burma. Her dad was very active in politics, and he knew he'd have to live his life constantly looking over his shoulder, and so they fled the country. They went to India for a short while, then they moved to Nepal. They also lived in Germany for a while, and Rebecca went to college in Austria, and after years of displacement, her family finally moved to the United States. Rebecca went to live in Phoenix, Arizona, while the rest of her family settled in Missouri. Rebecca knew she wanted to do something in the medical field, so she got hired at an ophthalmology clinic, and she loved it. And so she decided to get certified, and then she moved up the ladder as a tech. She got hired at Horizon Eye Institute in Phoenix, and she was very proud of her job. She had enough to pay for herself, and she also sent $400 back to her parents with every paycheck. Mm. Yes. Rebecca was a fitness buff and a career woman who spoke six languages. Dang. That's hot. <laughs> I know. But all the headlines after she and Jonah got together just classified her as the beautiful girlfriend. Well, I'm sure the age difference didn't help, right? No, it didn't. On October 19th, 2009, they went on their first date. Despite the 20-year age gap, again, she's 32, he was 54, they had similar interests. They were both active, they were both into a healthy lifestyle, and both were very family-oriented. After three months of dating, their relationship got more serious. Rebecca never seemed like the money was the main draw in the relationship. Like, it was never material things that she would talk about when she talked about her relationship with other people. They just got along really well. But people in Jonah's life weren't the most welcoming to Rebecca. Maybe because she wasn't white, or maybe because she was 20 years younger. But Rebecca's older sister, Mary, also didn't approve of the relationship. Like, she hated the age gap, and she also felt like Jonah was taking advantage of Rebecca, like she was a convenience, like a glorified nanny. Mary said Rebecca had a tough time with the teenagers Jonah had from his first marriage, but she got along really well with Max. She would play with him, read to him. I can't imagine. Those teenagers are probably, like, closer. They're closer to her, like, her being their sister than a stepmom, I'm sure. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. I was trying to do the math if they're closer to her in age than she is to their dad. And I think, yeah, she would be closer to their age <laughs> unless they're 11 and they're teenagers. So they're not. I've seen this played out many times on 90 Day Fiance is all I'm saying. I've seen this played out many a times in true crime stories. So, oh. Yeah. Rebecca loved Max. She fully assumed the role of stepmom for him. She would take him to soccer games, put Band-Aids on his cuts, play with him. And it didn't seem like Dina really liked how much Max liked being with Rebecca, which is just kind of sad. 
So Jonah and Rebecca had been dating about a year when Jonah asked her to quit her job so that she could come and summer with them in Coronado. But that was a really big decision for her because of the money that she was sending home to her parents. So Jonah told her not to worry about the money. He'd give her the money for her parents if that's what she was worried about. So she decided to quit her job so that she'd have more time with Jonah and Max and could spend the summer in Coronado. That sounds like a lovely arrangement, perhaps. It really does, until something like this happens. And in the aftermath of Max's accident, Rebecca was terrified about what was happening to him, but she was also worried for herself. Like, she could lose everything. She'd Mm -hmm. quit her job to come to Coronado. And if Jonah blamed her for Max's accident and cut her off or broke up with her, she had no other source of income. The day after the accident, Rebecca went to the airport to pick up Dina's twin sister, don't laugh, Nina Romano. Yeah, I'm not addressing that, so. (laughs) Dina and Jonah were holding vigil by Max's bedside at the hospital, and neither of them had left. And Nina says that Rebecca was acting really strangely on the drive back from the airport after picking her up. She wouldn't really tell Nina what was going on. What she did say didn't make a whole lot of sense. Like when Nina asked where Max had fallen from, if it was this landing or the second floor or where, Rebecca said he fell from the bedroom and then just asked her to read the directions. Hmm. The day after that, Rebecca went back to the airport to drop off her sister Zena so she could fly back to Missouri and Rebecca could focus on Jonah and Max. Zena is her sister, not is her little no sister. No relation to Dina and Nina. Correct. Okay. <laughs> Just wanted to clarify that. Yes, because once again, this no, is definitely no flow chart from Mocha. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was just about to say that is unfortunate because at least I feel like in this story, there's a lot of similar names yeah. and people flying in and out. So they're understand that that creating the flow chart probably felt intimidating. You would have to draw like back and forth there. Yes. So I understand that would have been helpful. For sure. That and I was writing the script up until literally <laughs> you picked up the Zoom call. So <laughs> I didn't have time. Way to out yourself there. <laughs> she was also picking up Jonah's brother, Adam, who had flown in to support Jonah. Oh, Jesus. I'm lost. Okay. Adam was much different from Jonah, like the black sheep of the family, some might say. He was working as a tugboat captain and living in Memphis, Tennessee at the time of the accident. Oh, I love that. Yes. Rebecca and Adam went to the hospital, and then they all went out to dinner at a fish market with Jonah, but there just wasn't much talking at dinner. Jonah went back to the hospital, and Adam and Rebecca went back to the mansion. Adam was staying in the guest house at the mansion, so when they got there, Rebecca went upstairs in the mansion, and Adam went to the guest house. And he says that's the last time he saw her until the next morning. Oh, no. At eight that night, Rebecca called her sister Mary in Missouri and told her that Adam was in the guest house and that she was getting changed and ready for bed. She said she was tired and she was planning on getting up around five or so so she could be at the hospital at six with a change of clothes for Jonah. This is when Rebecca expresses some of her concerns about just not knowing what's going to happen to her, if she's going to even stay in Coronado or if she's going to go home or if she'll be getting her allowance for a while, which was a big support for her parents in Missouri. The allowance, like, from Jonah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They also talked about their dad's 80th birthday, and Rebecca said she was planning on coming home for that. At 12.30 that night, Jonah called and left a message for Rebecca, telling her that Max's situation had taken a turn for the worst. 
Doctors had told him that if by some miracle Max managed to survive, the best case scenario was that Max would never walk or talk again. Oh, my God. Adam said that night that he wished Rebecca goodnight before going into the guest house, called his girlfriend, then popped an Ambien and went to sleep around eight that night. The next morning, he woke up and started searching around for coffee. There was none that he could find in the guest house, so he decided to go into the main mansion. He walked outside, and that's when he saw Rebecca's naked body hanging by a red rope from a second-story balcony. I'm sorry, naked? Naked. Was that hanging from where? Balcony, like inside, not outside? It's outside in a courtyard outside the house. Okay. Her hands were tied behind her, and her feet were also bound together. And there was a blue T-shirt tied around her head gagging her. So if, if you saw someone hanging like that, what would just your first thought be? Like, what would what would you think it was? I would scream and I would go call 911. Like, I would I don't think that I would think that she hung herself, hanged herself. Yeah, I've been asking myself that question over and over again, because if I saw someone hanging outside like they're in The Handmaid's Tale and they're naked and their feet are bound and their hands are bound behind them, and they had a gag in their mouth. How would they get? I don't think I'm thinking suicide. I don't think my first reaction is she did that to herself. Uh, The only reason why in this situation you would possibly think that is because of the emotional trauma, like because of her situation with Max. Yeah. If I just was like walking down the street and saw that, I would not assume it was suicide. Yeah, and that could be that could be it because at 6:48, Adam called 911 and said, "I got a girl. She hung herself. Same place you came, came and got the kid yesterday, which it had actually Wait, been two days." He said that. He said that. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> While on the phone with 911, trying to come up with the address of the house, he runs into the kitchen and grabs a knife and a broken three-legged table to stand on, so that he could cut her down. He took the T-shirt out of her mouth and tried to perform mouth-to-mouth resuscitations, but it was too late. Oh, I'm... This one is really doing a number on me. It's been doing a number on me since I first heard about it. Then why? When I said, is this nosy with the light on? You're like, oh, yeah. Because it's not like... It's not in a creepy way. It's not in a scary way. It's in yeah, a... Uh, yeah, yes, check. Creepy. Yes, scary. Check. <laughs> yes. No. <laughs> Like it's what? in a like what on earth does all of this mean kind of way to me. The nine one one operator asks him like, "Is she alive?" And you can hear him like screaming, "Are you alive?" At her while he's doing these chest compressions. Adam brought the first responders when they arrived. He brought them through the front door to the back of the mansion where Rebecca was now lying on the ground in the courtyard out back, and they knew that there was nothing that they could do. Rigor mortis had already set in. She was dead. And so they set her time of death at 3.30 that morning. And he found her, like, going to get coffee. So it's been a while. Yeah, about 6.30. Yeah. Yeah. She had a good amount of dirt on her feet, as well as black paint on her breasts and inside of her thigh, as well as some blood there. Adam called Jonah, who got the news at the hospital that Rebecca had completed suicide. Dina asks what's going on, and Jonah tells her that Rebecca was found dead. When Dina asks how that could have happened, Jonah says something really weird. He takes his hands together like he's grabbing a knife or a sword. He jabs it into his chest with both hands and says, 
Asian honor. Asian honor. Uh, what? Yeah. Jonah believes that Rebecca listened to his voicemail and made a drastic decision because she felt so guilty about Max. Investigators from the San Diego County Sheriff's Department, they came to interview Jonah at the hospital. And he said, she comes from a true Asian background. They just look at things differently in terms of responsibility. And I feel like I'm so tired of people thinking that they know anything about Asian culture when they're not Asian. Like they're putting all of these words into Asian people's mouths about honor killings and all of these things that they just don't understand at all. (laughs) I'm getting really sick of it. Yeah. Let me build you a little soapbox real quick. (laughs) Let me sign up on that. Thank you. No, I understand that. Did you have a lot of soapboxes I like to go on? (laughs) Okay, he also said that the relationship between Rebecca and Dina was at the edge of civil. And he mentioned that Rebecca's ex-husband, this guy named Neil Nalepa, who was later cleared of all suspicion, He said that he was in exceedingly insistent contact with her. Like he texted her almost every day, her ex-husband. And even though he seemed really confident that Rebecca had killed herself, near the end of the interview, after the officers had asked about security dogs and all of this stuff, Jonah asked them, do I need protection? Jonah asked the police if he needs protection. Yeah, but like, why would you need protection if you believe that she killed herself? Like, who would you need protection from? Yeah, honor killings don't include like family. Really, you know? I don't know, because that's not part of my culture, so I'm not (laughs) going to, like, speculate on it. Well, I know that they have a very close-knit family. I don't know. (sighs) You're right. I don't know. (laughs) So back at the mansion, police were treating this like a possible homicide. They cleared the house. They took pictures. And the chief of police decided pretty quickly on that this case was beyond their level. So they contacted the San Diego Sheriff's Department, who brought in their whole homicide investigation team. By 9.30 that morning, three hours after the body was discovered, lead detective from San Diego, Angela Sueda, arrived at the Spreckles Mansion, ready to start her investigation. So she's told that Rebecca was found naked with her hands tied behind her back, her feet bound, and a noose around her neck. And the knots used to tie her looked like complicated, complex, nautical ties. There were several loops and hitches, and it just looked way more complicated than the task required, like an overkill of knots. No pun intended. (laughs) I really didn't. That was an accidental pun. Police scoured the 27-room mansion for evidence, and in the garage, they find this giant spool of red nautical rope, which was the same rope that Rebecca had used. This is the kind of rope that's used for, like, water skiing. Right. Then they went upstairs to the guest room connected to the balcony, and they found a very odd crime scene. Oh, my God. Tell me. So they found the red rope tied near the foot of the antique iron bed frame, and it stretched all the way across the room out to the balcony. Okay. On the floor of the room were two knives, a steak knife with traces of blood on the handle, and a chef's knife. They find Rebecca's cell phone, a towel, and drops of blood. On the floor, they found two paintbrushes and a tube of acrylic paint from her art supplies. Rebecca liked to paint to relieve stress, so she had those materials in the house. One of the brushes had been used to paint a note on the back of the door. A very, very odd note. Cryptic. That said, she saved him. 
Can you save her? Oh. Yeah. They had no idea what to think of that message. Is that she saved him? Is that Rebecca saving Max when she gave him CPR? Can you save her? Is that asking, can you save Rebecca? And who Mm -hmm. are they asking it to? Who are they talking to? It certainly doesn't seem like a suicide note, or it's the weirdest suicide note I've ever seen. Right. This doesn't make any sense. No, none of it makes sense. They also found a book about witchcraft, and in that book was a section titled Method of Binding for an Initiation. It instructed you to use nine feet of red rope, which is the same color of rope that she had. It had instructional drawings of a woman binding herself with her hands behind her back, but it was different than how Rebecca had been found bound. But like how to do it yourself? Yes, but it was different than how Rebecca was found. So it's not like she used this as like an instructional manual or anything. And Rebecca's fingerprints were the only prints found on the book. The only other person at the compound that night was Adam. Compound. (laughs) Yeah. So Adam went down to the police station. He seemed to be completely cooperative. He didn't get a lawyer. He offered to take a polygraph. In the interrogation, Adam said it absolutely seemed like a suicide to him. He took the polygraph, answering questions about if he was in the guest room, if he was involved in her death in any way. He answered no to every question. And then just completely unprompted during the interview, like during the polygraph, just out of the blue, says that he was masturbating to porn that morning right before he found the body. Just completely out of the blue. Felt like they needed to know that. Okay. That's not really an alibi. (laughs) So it's not a great alibi. No, I'm trying to think, like, is there a reason he would need to share that? Like if anything, like DNA wise, but he's in a totally separate house. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know why he thought they would. Yeah. (laughs) The results of the polygraph came in. The officer said he could have done a whole lot worse, but the results were inconclusive. Unfortunately, the police had no physical evidence that Adam was involved at all. So they let him go back to Memphis. And then Rebecca's death hit national news. At the time, her family only knew that she'd hanged herself. But they turned on the news and found out that not only had she hanged herself, she'd been found naked, bound, and gagged. They had no idea about any of that. And suddenly, her family no longer believes that this was a suicide. They know that someone killed her. And they were also upset at how the police had managed the crime scene. Rebecca's body had been left lying on the grass all day long. They didn't even cover her up, just completely naked in the courtyard. And a news helicopter had been able to fly over the courtyard and get footage of her body. What? That's weird. I know. The Shacknai family continued to believe it was a suicide as Rebecca's family publicly declares their suspicions. Mary says Rebecca would have never completed suicide, and there are other signs pointing to it not being suicide, like the fact that she was making plans for the future for her dad's birthday party and saying Mm -hmm. that she was going to get up in the morning. There were also plenty of questions about how a woman ties her own hands behind her back and then binds her feet and then gets herself over to the balcony and then gets herself over the balcony to hang herself. Yeah. So on July 16th, 2011, three days after Rebecca's death, doctors confirmed that Max was brain dead. 
And people wondered if the two deaths were connected. Did Rebecca kill herself because of the guilt she felt over Max? Or did someone else kill Rebecca because they blamed her for Max's death? A couple of days later, the sheriff's office comes out and does a press conference saying they are launching two investigations, one into Rebecca's death and one into Max's. They announced they weren't ready to say if this was a criminal matter or if it was a suicide at this time. And so one journalist at the press conference says, okay, just to clarify, you're saying she's found naked with her hands and her feet bound and you're not ready to call it criminal. And the sheriff or whoever was speaking for him says, that's correct. And the journalist says, what more do you need? <laughs> well, is it? <laughs> hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, is it, though, that because if it's suicide, it's not considered criminal? Right. Right. Yes. So that's what. Okay. But he's saying, yeah. how are you thinking that this is suicide right now? She was. Right. Bound and gagged and naked. Stock prices of Medesis starts to plummet and Jonah starts to panic. He hires a PR firm and his company also gives him armed guards to follow him around everywhere. He's staying as far away from the limelight as he can. The family also said that Jonah never mentioned to them that he had a brother or that his brother had been there when she died. Investigators looked closer into Max's death. The wheels under his razor scooter had white paint on them that matched the paint on the banister, and there were two fresh gouges on the banister, and they matched perfectly with the underside of the scooter. So the evidence is all pointing to an accident, that he'd been riding his scooter like too fast upstairs, he'd collided with the banister, and tumbled over the top. They also looked really hard at this note on the door. There were two options to who wrote it. It was either Rebecca or it was someone that killed her and then staged this whole thing to look like a suicide. They kept uh-huh. saying that over and over, that if she was murdered, that that person staged it to look like a suicide. Everybody said that. And I just kept thinking, it doesn't look like a suicide at all. Yeah, like, maybe if somebody's it's not. Staging it, they didn't stage it to look like a suicide. It's just, it's just a murder, a creative right. murder scene. Right. I guess the hanging part, because people don't usually like – murder someone by hanging them but every other part of it it just doesn't look like a suicide like if you're trying to make it look like a suicide you're not going to bind them you're not going to write some weird note on the door you're going to say something like i'm sorry or i wish i could have saved him or something like that right so it's so weird investigators got rebecca's phone records for the past year showing that she was in a terrible state of mind She'd been writing things like, I feel this incredible emptiness when I'm not thinking, I'm crying, and no amount of money is worth what I'm going through. But no one seemed to know what she was going through. Where was all of that? In her phone. I don't know if they were like texts or if they were notes that she was writing. I'm not sure. But her phone just showed that she didn't seem optimistic about the future. Now, her family says, you know, nobody ever asked us or talked to us about her state of mind, and... We didn't see any signs of any of that. So they're also in Missouri, though. Yeah. I mean, it's but easier the, to kind of like, you know, not recognize stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you're far away. The biggest questions on everyone's mind were these deaths the result of criminal conduct? Was Max's death a homicide? Was Rebecca's? Finally, the San Diego County Sheriff held another press conference to reveal the findings of their investigations. 
This was a highly anticipated event that everyone was hopeful would answer a lot of questions. Commander Mike Lawton came up to discuss the death of Max. He said that Max's injuries and the evidence is consistent with a fall from the second floor. They show an image of what they think happened, which showed Max falling from the second story over the banister, grabbing onto the chandelier, and then like pulling it down with him and landing next to it on the foyer floor, hitting his head. Oh, God, I cannot with that. Like, I can't. I know. No evidence indicating any kind of foul play. It was a tragic accident. And they ruled the manner of death accidental. Then they moved on to Rebecca Zahal. They started out by saying that this was a very unique and unusual case, but that they had to look past the unusual appearance of the death and focus on the facts. Except to me, the unusual appearance of the death is part of the facts, but whatever. Right. They said that based on the physical evidence and the autopsy findings, their office found the cause of death was hanging and the manner of death was suicide. And people were shocked. Like, how on earth could they look at the evidence here and rule this a suicide? How could she have done all of this to herself? Mm-hmm. The sheriff went to great lengths to convince people that it was possible that someone could tie these complicated nautical knots on themselves. They even made a video of one of their employees doing the bindings on herself to prove that it was possible that Rebecca could have done it. And it did seem to prove to the public that it was possible. They said she was so committed to the suicide that she gagged herself so that she wouldn't even be able to cry out for help. And she Uh bound her hands so that she wouldn't be able to self-rescue. But nobody could ever prove or even suggest that she had the skill set to do these knots. Like, I couldn't do knots like that. Yeah. And I've been around boats. I've tied up a boat. I can't do, like, nautical knots. (laughs) I tied a boat one time, and it quickly came untied. And that was a situation (laughs) that I was not prepared for. I am sure I've done that, too. Life doesn't happen biweekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine, but the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. 
But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pros custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. So, because when you're tying up a boat, you're just doing like figure eights on those little hook little thingies. Metal things on the, Yeah. yeah. And this was the bindings were figure eights, but they had these like hitches in the knots. Like it wasn't just wrapping it around over and over again and then like tying it off or something. And it was this thing where you could like tighten it yourself from the back. Like it was a yeah, very I feel like I've seen that. Yeah, it was a very complicated type of knot. They announced that DNA profiles from the bindings were all only from Rebecca and that there was just no other logical explanation. Except that she took her own life. Okay, but that does, there is no, you haven't said anything about any other DNA in that room. No, there was no other DNA so, I mean, in the that... whole room than Rebecca. <sighs> they said that the last outgoing call Rebecca made was to her own voicemail, where she would have heard the call from Jonah saying that Max's outlook was grim. And that was the moment that she made the decision to take her own life. She became so despondent, she wrote that cryptic message, put the rope around her neck, bound her feet, and then her hands behind her back in knots way more complicated than necessary, and then shuffled onto the balcony and flipped herself over the edge. I'm starting to think that that is maybe what happened because of the lack of other DNA and because I'm thinking about that message. And maybe she wanted... The reminder of, like, she saved him. Because in my mind, I don't feel like she's... I mean, the idea of, like, she saved him. Well, like, she wasn't monitoring him. So I wonder if it was, like, when she wrote that note, she's, like, reminding them, like, I did do this good thing because she's feeling so much guilt, you know? I don't know. But if she's doing it because he's taken a turn for the worst... Why would she write she saved him when he's not saved? Because I think she's saying, like, I did what I, like, I know that this is kind of, like, I know this is my fault, but I saved him, like, so that you could, I don't know. Because, I mean, I get, I agree with you. I just think that, like, that's her way of, like, I don't want to be remembered for just this, like, I did. I don't know. Try to save him. She saved him. Ken You save her. I mean, I don't get that part, but. Yeah, it's weird. But both cases are officially closed. But neither family accepts the conclusions. Mary insists that Rebecca would not kill herself over Jonah and his family. 
She said that up until that voicemail around 1230, the general consensus among the family was that Max's condition was improving, and they were all hopeful for a full recovery. That would mean that she got that voicemail, decided to kill herself, and then came up with this whole complicated plan in two hours. And the fact that she was naked is what really sealed the deal for Mary. It was inconceivable to her that Rebecca would complete suicide naked. People said, well, maybe she got out of the shower and then she checked the voicemail and that's when she decided to do it so she didn't bother getting dressed. Yeah, you're still putting clothes on. Yeah, and she would have had to go to the garage to get the rope. She would have had to go to the kitchen to get the knife. She would have had to do all of that. She also would have somehow had to get blood on the knife. We'll come back to the knives later. She just wouldn't have gone outside to the garage or walked around the kitchen all naked, especially with Adam around. Like, he's in the guest house, but he could still come into the main house. It just didn't seem plausible at all. And she said Asian people are too modest. She wouldn't do that. But she did say that Rebecca slept in the nude due to an allergy on her body. And it seemed way more possible to Mary that someone caught her in her sleep in bed and attacked her. Mm. Okay, there was also the steak knife. We'll get more into both knives later, but the steak knife had Rebecca's blood on the handle of the knife, not the blade. So Mm -hmm. her blood is on the handle. And it was even found caked in the crevices of the handle. But Rebecca wasn't found bleeding from any part of her body. Like, there were no cuts, nothing. There was just blood on her, like it had been, like, put on her. Or, like... No, it was her blood found on the knife. Right, I know, but didn't you say there was, like, blood on her thigh? But she wasn't, like, cut. Right. But she was on her period. So... Mm. The steak knife could be explained by someone sexually assaulting Rebecca with the handle of the knife while she's on her period. So I tried to Google to see if they'd have been able to tell the difference between menstrual blood and regular blood. And I'm pretty sure that they can, but I couldn't get a clear answer that wasn't too long and technical. And maybe if it's trace amounts, it can be difficult to tell. I don't know. But it is something that's odd. And that's one explanation for something that could explain evidence that was found at the scene. That's not explained by this theory of suicide. Dina also didn't buy that Max's death was purely accidental. To her, there was a chance that her son was murdered. So she hired a Harvard-educated forensic medical examiner from San Francisco named Dr. Melanick, who agreed to look into Max's death. When she did, she discovered a curious detail in the images from the Spreckles mansion. First was that the flooring on the second level was thick carpet, which would not have allowed Max to reach such a speed on his scooter that would have caused him to flip over the balcony. Also, Max was too short to get over the railing. His, like, center of gravity was too low. That's what I was wondering. Like, the banister, it wasn't like wood that, like, it broke and he went through. He didn't, like, They're saying he went over it. Yeah, he went over it. Yeah. She doesn't believe that Max could have launched himself over, and he also had multiple injuries that were in different places and didn't seem to match this fall or the sheriff's theories, meaning that there could have been a separate earlier event that caused those injuries, like an attack. So then Dr. Melanick read the police incident report, and part of Rebecca's story catches her eye. Rebecca had told police that Max had said the name of the family dog to her, Ocean. Ocean. But Dr. Melanick said that due to the injuries, he would not have been able to make a single sound, much less say a word. And due to the injuries to his cervical cord, 
Melanick reached her conclusion that the cause of death was brain damage, but the way it occurred was far more sinister. She ruled his death as a homicide. Also, I know that this is a small child, but I feel like ocean sounds a lot like, oh, shit, which (laughs) feels like maybe is what you would say. Yeah, maybe so. Her theory was that Max was out on the scooter, Rebecca went to discipline him, and Max, like, wiggled out of her arms and fell over the banister. She believed that Rebecca having a hand in Max's death also would explain her suicide, like the guilt factor of being responsible for his death would be much higher than just being in the house when it happened. Yeah. Rebecca's family totally disagrees, obviously. They said that Rebecca said she didn't know how it happened. She heard the loud noise. She came running out to see Max on the ground. And they continued to dispute the handling of Rebecca's case. Mary said they did not do an investigation from the beginning like they should have, and she knew they'd have to do something to prove that she didn't complete suicide. So the Zahau family hired a lawyer, Amy Bremner, whose main task was to help convince the authorities to reopen the case as a homicide. So she gets an expert on board with her named Cyril Wecht, who is like a world-renowned forensic pathologist. And what jumped out to him was the way that she was bound. Being completely tied up, and then also having to get herself over the balcony. But Dr. Wecht had 56 years in forensic pathology, had performed over 2,000 autopsies, and he could not recall a single instance of a woman completing suicide naked. You know what I can't get over? Hmm. How much was this estate, this compound, as you called it, like $13 million? $13 million, yeah. You mean to tell me there's not any internal or external cameras? Like, I find that very hard to believe. There's no security cameras in a $13 million home. Yeah, no, there weren't. But there wasn't much else he could do from the autopsy report, and so they made the decision to exhume Rebecca's body, and he performed a second autopsy. So he found four separate hemorrhages under her scalp, and the theory from the sheriff's investigation was that she must have hit her head on the way down, but... That didn't really seem to be possible. Like, there was nothing that she would have Four hit times? her head on. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, if you look at the balcony, and the balcony, it's just a very small little balcony, and there's nothing on the wall under it, nothing that she would have hit her head on. There was no other explanation than direct trauma from some kind of object. Also, long drop hanging, which is having a body fall more than 10 feet, It's very rare. You don't see them in suicides very often. So pathologists don't really ever see injuries from long drop hangings. It's not something that they're used to seeing. You mostly see them in countries that use this type of hanging for executions. So that's where your experts are going to be on long drop execution style hanging. It was meant to be a more humane type of execution because it was meant to snap the neck and it would kill the person instantly (laughs) you're welcome you're gonna learn a lot from this oh yeah i can't wait to really hone in my professional skills here for (laughs) update my resume (laughs) just put it right under my community service (laughs) the bottom So the injuries from long drop execution style hangings, they're not the same as what you typically see in a suicide hanging. You'd expect to find more damage in the trachea and cartilage in the neck, but hers didn't show any of that. Her other neck injuries seem to point to the true cause of her death. 
she had injuries to her hyoid bone, which is what you get from manual strangulation. Mm. So Dr. Wecht did not believe it was a suicide. He believed that someone hit her on the back of the head to subdue her, then strangled her, then staged the whole hanging to cover up the injuries from the strangulation. But who would have killed her? Well, there was Adam, who was on the grounds. There was Dina and her twin sister, Nina, whom Rebecca had said would kill her over what happened with Max. All of them had means and motive, but Adam had the best opportunity. Adam also was a tugboat captain. And it's likely that he would have had the skill set to do those complicated nautical ties Rebecca was tied up with. Yikes. So the Zahau family took this new information back to the San Diego Sheriff Department to get the case reopened. But their request was denied. Jonah also tried to get them to reopen the case, and they wouldn't do it. Yeah. That was an interesting fact I found out in the article I read. That makes me feel... Linked in the show notes. Okay. But their request was denied. They were going to keep the case ruled a suicide due to the fact that there was no other DNA found in that room other than hers. I can't believe they can just, like, decide not to reopen something. I mean, I get it, but... Like, people are requesting that, and there's new information. Like, I feel like you have to. Yeah, no. But you don't. But Mary said the sheriff's office can't answer simple questions, which means that they don't know what happened, which means that they shouldn't be ruling it as a suicide if they don't really know. And that's the thing. I don't think anybody has a clue what happened. But that's why I get mad, because then you can reopen it. And even if it was a suicide and you reopen it and then you just reaffirm. Right. Because I don't think that anybody can say for 100 percent sure that this was a suicide. I get why they think it's a suicide and that it's possible that it was a suicide. It's, It's not out of the realm of possibility. But neither is it that it was a homicide. Rebecca's family continued to work hard for years to try and get justice for Rebecca but they really got nowhere. So around 2013, they hired a lawyer named Keith Greer to represent the family. And at this point, it was clear that no one would ever be held criminally responsible for Rebecca's death. And so their only alternative was to file a civil action to get some sort of resolution, take it to civil court. They wanted to use the civil courts to nudge the sheriff's department to reopen the case, Mm -hmm. file a wrongful death suit. Right. So... The Zahaus believed that Adam, Dina, and Nina all conspired in Rebecca's death, and it could have been any one of them. It could have been all three. The Zahau family originally filed a $10 million lawsuit against Adam, Nina, and Dina, a wrongful death lawsuit. And there was extreme tension between the two families. The Shacknais were totally disgusted by these allegations. And then evidence came out in the intervening years that changed Greer's mind on the involvement of Dina and Nina. So in April of 2017, almost six years after the deaths of Max Shacknai and Rebecca Zahau, Greer held a press conference with Nina and Dina right by his side, saying that he thought he had evidence to support claims that Dina and Nina were involved, but that the evidence had been refuted. Video surveillance footage from the hospital that night showed that Dina was at the hospital all night that night at her son's bedside. And Nina was at Dina's house in Coronado with a witness who corroborated her story that she had gone back and gone to sleep at the house that night. Why would he check that first? Like, that would have been my first thing is like, there's obviously cameras at a hospital. 
I don't know. I don't think this guy, this lawyer that the family hired, I don't think he did a great job going through that stuff. They determined both of those women to have rock solid alibis, which I'd say Nina's maybe not as rock solid as Dina's, but right. she just had like somebody that was like, yeah, she was here. Right. Yeah. I I do feel very confused of like what actually constitutes an alibi. Because it's like Nina over here like, oh, I was in bed. And then we've got a homeboy having to pull tape from HBO and he was gone for five seconds. You know what I mean? Like it's right. Well, and I think that it definitely depends on how railroaded you mm-hmm. are, you know, right. by a right. system against you. Because, yeah, you would. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I read what you're uh, putting down there. The lawsuit against Adam continued. There were just too many things that when added up kind of pointed to Adam. Even though Adam hadn't been charged with any crime, the judge allowed the wrongful death lawsuit to proceed. And the key difference between a criminal trial and a civil trial is the burden of proof. Mm -hmm. So in a criminal trial, it has to be guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. But in a civil trial, that standard is pretty low. Basically, is it more likely than not is kind of the standard in a Mm -hmm. civil trial. So in March of 2018, that trial began. Everyone had been waiting for this trial, hoping to finally learn what had actually happened to Rebecca Zahau. And Adam's defense team was really impressive. The lead defense counsel, Daniel Webb, was this really high-profile former U.S. attorney. Someone said that he had once told Trump that he was too busy to represent him. Like, that's, that's how <laughs> big this guy was. I love that. So he's, <laughs> I'm sure Jonah is footing this bill. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think the tugboat captain is. A- exactly. He's really good. And he had a whole powerful team behind him, all paid for by Jonah, of course. On the other side of the courtroom was Greer sitting next to Mary side mm-hmm. by side. So there was a big discrepancy in legal power at this trial. But Keith Greer came out swinging in opening statements. He said it was a confrontation that went awry. And the stage was set. First, Adam assaulted her and then staged the scene to look like a suicide. Again, didn't do a very good job making it look like a suicide. Greer goes to establish motive and says that it was all to cover up a sexual assault. Oh, I didn't mention that the police had confiscated two laptops from the house or two computers from the house that had Google searches for bondage porn. Well, how do you just leave out these... (laughs) You keep doing this. I forgot to say that. Anyways, Dan Webb, the defense attorney, he gets up and he's like, there's absolutely no evidence that Adam was involved here. He was never charged. He was just like, what are we doing here? Yeah. So Greer calls a crime scene expert named Lisa DeMeo. And she testified that she was very impressed by the amount of evidence that was collected but never presented anywhere. Oh. She was supposed to look and see if something was missing, and she found some big issues with the fingerprints and the DNA. Rebecca's was found all over, but nobody else's. But places commonly handled didn't have any fingerprints. Places like the doorknob or the rest of the door. So they were like cleaned off. Right. Her DNA 
Rebecca's wasn't found on items that they're claiming she handled, like the paintbrushes that were used to write the message. Her fingerprints were not found. No smears, nothing. No fingerprints were found on them. That told DeMeo that someone must have wiped him down. Also, the knives. Remember, there was both a steak knife and a Mm -hmm. large chef's knife found on the floor in the guest bedroom. Both were processed for DNA and prints and showed something really curious. So the large chef's knife had Rebecca's prints on the blade, but not the handle. Hmm. And the prints were not consistent with how anyone would handle a knife. They were weird, loosey-goosey all over the blade of this large knife. So how could those have gotten there? DeMeo's conclusion was that the prints would be consistent with a scenario where Rebecca is holding the knife behind her back by the not sharp edge of the knife, Mm -hmm. trying to cut the ropes off of her hands. And it's like waving. She's trying to like... Yeah, and she's like trying to get... She's like behind it and she's trying to like get the... Yeah. Okay, so then DeMeo turns to the evidence on the smaller knife, the steak knife. Rebecca's blood and DNA were found on that knife, but no fingerprints were found in the blood. So how was the blood applied to the knife if she didn't have bloody hands and grabbed the knife? Yeah. So she presents the theory that Rebecca was sexually assaulted with that knife. So Greer then calls a handwriting expert. And this is what really, this is what gets me. And I also, I don't want this to be what gets me because I also know that handwriting analysis is very like in the junk science realm. Like it's very. It's like there with polygraphs. Right. You shouldn't really base all your opinions on handwriting. But this testimony to me is pretty persuasive because he testifies that when someone writes on a surface, they usually do it at shoulder height, which as someone who literally writes on a whiteboard all day as my entire day job as a teacher, I can confirm if I'm writing well above my shoulder height or well below my shoulder height, it's very, yeah, it's very uncomfortable. And my writing gets a lot sloppier. So he determined that whoever had written the message was probably around 5'11". Rebecca is 5'2", but guess how tall Adam is? 5'10". Stop it. If she's 5'2", she can't write 5'11", unless she's standing on something. That's what I'm, that's what really gets me is the message was so high up. At shoulder height for somebody 5'11", that's nine inches. It's not like she couldn't reach that. It's nine inches. I mean, she could reach it. But it just would be higher than where you would normally, yeah, higher than where you'd normally write. Also, all of the writing on the door leaned towards the left. But in samples of Rebecca's handwriting, her letters always lean to the right. But in samples of Adam's writing, his did lean to the left, just like the door. And this part gets me a little bit too. The M on the door in She Saved Him, that M where the final line of the M is much longer than the rest of the M. They're saying between Adam and Rebecca, it's much more likely that Adam wrote the note and not Rebecca. The defense attempts to undermine the handwriting expert, saying he only looked at two people. He only looked at Rebecca and Adam. He also got him to admit on the stand that he'd used Photoshop, which he was probably using Photoshop for the right reasons in his analysis. But most people hear Photoshop and they think like Kim K's entire Instagram grid, you know, like manipulation, (laughs) change, like you doctored it somehow. Yeah. 
So it was a really smart tactic because it discredited him on some level. But even if he only examined two people, it might not prove Adam wrote the note, but it supports the theory that Rebecca did not write it. Yeah. Yeah. After all of that, the plaintiff rested and the defense starts to make their case by calling Jonah. People watching were very interested in his testimony. They wanted to see what Jonah really thought about the death of his beloved girlfriend. Yeah. Nowhere in this have we talked about like anyone's, and I know we talk about behavior not being like a sign of, you know, who's at fault, but there hasn't been any discussion about emotion. Like, how was he feeling about Max? Was he like devastated? Was he being cold towards Rebecca? Like, was he devastated when she died? Have all the emotional questions. Yeah, they didn't go into that a lot in either of the documentaries I watched or in the article I read. But the article I read did touch on a little bit with Dina and Nina because they said that people liked Nina a lot more because she seemed more upset that Dina was more put together and wasn't really showing a lot of emotion. And people didn't like that because people want to see a devastated mother. They want to see a devastation. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't giving them that. So I did read that in this article. But for the most part, I think that Jonah really just had all these people surrounding him, keeping him out of the media and out of the limelight. Mm -hmm. I think that they were both utterly devastated. I really don't think that Jonah had anything to do with either death. I think that he was torn apart by both of them. And then his brother gets accused of this thing, and now he's at this trial trying to defend his brother. But he's also an incredibly rich white guy. So, like, who knows? Right. Not me. I have no idea. But I really don't think that he had anything to do with it. He was very compelling in his testimony, but he's used to being in the limelight. He said he called Adam and that Adam told him Rebecca had taken her life And he couldn't believe it. And don't forget, he said that weird thing about Asian honor. I mean, that was all really weird. Forgot about that. But he said he went on a tangent after that. Yeah. He said he couldn't believe it. He'd been watching his son fight for his life for two days. Now he's lost Rebecca as well. I mean, he was crying on the stand. Like, it was really Mm. sad. He looked really genuine at that part in those clips that I saw. And when he's questioned about Adam, he said that it was inconceivable to him that Adam would do this. But then Adam got on the stand because in a civil case, you can actually force someone to take the stand, unlike a criminal case. I know there's no pleading the fifth in a civil trial, which I did not know. Hmm. Adam said he's never seen or used those kinds of knots before. He doesn't know how to tie knots and they don't even use them on the modern river system. I'm sorry. You don't know how to tie any knots? You're not just like on the boat. You're the captain, right? Yeah. He's the tugboat captain. You know some knots, sir. That's what I'm thinking. I'm like, if you're – yeah, that's what I'm thinking also. You better if you want to be able to survive. Like, that's a danger. Like, you could – something could happen. Like, you need to know. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, were you not in the Boy Scouts? Scouts? Like, that's what I was thinking. (laughs) Like, a Cub Scout knows how to tie knots. Yeah. So Greer gets up and challenges his story on finding Rebecca hanging from the balcony. In Adam's 911 call, he said, I got a girl. She hung herself. He doesn't refer to Rebecca by name, even though he knows her. Got a girl. Yeah. Yeah, I got a girl. And Adam just seemed very nonchalant and cavalier on the stand. He just said, I can't remember. 
over and over. He said he thought Rebecca had hanged herself. But Greer had a very bold move planned for the jury. In his closing statements, he brought out this realistic-looking mannequin of Rebecca Zahal hanging naked from this red rope. And he starts going after Adam's account of the morning. He sees Rebecca hanging, but he doesn't go to check on her. He doesn't check to see if she's alive or dead. He just calls 911. He doesn't even think about checking on if she's alive until the 911 operator asks him, and he says, I don't know if she's alive. And then is like, are you alive? Greer said Rebecca was in the shower, and Adam first confronted Rebecca as she got out of the shower. Then something happened to where Rebecca ended up on the totally opposite side of the house where the murder took place. She was struck on the back of the head four times by Adam. She subdued, bound, gagged, and sexually assaulted. And then Adam manually strangled Rebecca and killed her before she was hanging off the balcony. Like that whole scenario also makes sense to me. And she doesn't have to be in the shower. She might have been sleeping on that side of the house for whatever reason. Mary says she sleeps naked. He found her naked. I don't know why he would do that. I don't know. I mean, it's a day. He's only been there one day, like not even a day. He just flew in that morning. So why would he do this? But Maybe somebody else got in the house and attacked her. Maybe there was somebody else there. They don't lock their doors. I mean, the theory that makes the most sense to me is that she was murdered and somebody did all this to her. And it seems to fit all these little pieces of evidence that just aren't explained by a suicide. It even Uh explains the weird message on the door. It's some murderer writing that trying to throw police off and confuse everybody. You know, right? I was thinking being on the opposite side of the house, no matter who like, I don't know. I feel weird about saying it's Adam. but I don't know that it's Adam. I don't think right. I can say. So whoever this is, her being on the other side of the house, it was like she maybe was in the shower and then ran. Like, I think you're running. So you're <gasps> going to be on the opposite side of yeah. the house. So you're running away. And that would explain, like, she's not running naked to the garage to get these supplies. So right. someone knew that stuff was in there or they put that there or they brought it with them. Or and, they hit her on the back of the head where she had those hemorrhages right. and then went to go get all those supplies and then strangled yes. her. She's running and that's why the kitchen knives, like she maybe ran from the shower to the kitchen and then ran to the guests, like that stuff. The one thing with the Adam thing is like he randomly throws out like, oh, I was looking at porn. Like almost as if he thinks somehow some sexual, like I, I feel like that was said because of some sexual like assault or something that like he felt like he needed to add that because something could come back later. I don't know. Like there's a reason why I felt like that was given out. I totally agree. I feel like there is definitely a reason that he said that. I don't know what it would be. Right. Like did something happen in the guest house? Did part of this crime happen in the guest house? If he like, Right. And he's trying there to a like, reason why if they find semen, he needs like some reason is like my thought. Yeah. There's a reason uh. he said it. There's a reason he just uh, that just came out of his mouth. And so the only thing I, I just think that all of the evidence shows that she was murdered. I don't think it necessarily points to Adam. The only thing that points to Adam is that he was the only person that we know was there. Mm-hmm. So like it, it must have been him. But. I mean, it could have been somebody else. Like, I don't know. That would be quite the coincidence. Yeah, I just don't know how you thought I didn't need someone to be home tonight. Like, that is all I can think about. (laughs) It's like, thank God I'm not sleeping by myself. 
As you're over here like, she might have been attacked in her sleep, but you'll be fine, Mocha. No, you're the worst. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so then Dan Webb, the defense attorney, he goes in for closing. And his biggest point is that there's no evidence that Adam had anything at all to do with Rebecca's death. There was a full investigation done, and it was deemed a suicide. He said it like a thousand times in his closing arguments, like, hello. The jury begins deliberations, and in a civil case, the jury doesn't have to be unanimous like a criminal trial. Only nine out of the 12 have to agree. And at least nine of them agreed that Adam caused the death of Rebecca. So he was found liable in this civil trial for her death. So in finding Adam responsible for her death, her family was awarded more than $5 million in damages. And Mary says at a press conference that hopefully the sheriff will take this and reopen the case and hold Adam criminally responsible. But Adam said at a press conference that he didn't care about those posers. That's what he said. I'm sorry. What? He said he didn't care about those posers. Who did he call posers? Rebecca Zahau's family. Family. Mm Mm-hmm. Someone that just lost their daughter. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. See, a big difference from like in that other, in the case when we did, you know, where Russell was wrongly accused for Angel Mm. Samoda and everyone, you know, and he's like, you know, I'm just glad that now my name is clear. Okay, you don't go and call the people, like the posers, the two differences of those. Right. Of course, his name wasn't cleared here. You know, he was found guilty. Uh But yeah, I agree. And- Yeah, he basically was referring to Rebecca's family like they were just greedy and after money, which really wasn't the case. Like, they weren't suing them because they wanted the money. It's not even the right use of that word. No, it's not. It's not. (gasps) And even though Dina once suspected that Rebecca had been involved in Max's death, she really doesn't believe that now. She doesn't have a reason to believe that Rebecca killed him and said, you know, who would assault a six-year-old boy? But Dina thinks there may have been someone else in the house that the police never investigated. And she also doesn't believe that Rebecca killed herself or that Adam was responsible. And I kind of agree with all of Dina's thoughts here. She said that Rebecca's death was the result of rage and planning. And there's no evidence that Adam knew her well enough to hate her that much to have this rage towards her. Yeah. And for her part, Nina wonders. Does Adam know more than he's saying? I just don't know, is what she says. Mm -hmm. But Dina believes that the deaths are inextricably linked, and any light shed on one of them might answer questions about the other one. Yeah. I also can't fault, like, Dina or Nina or Jonah or all these people that have, like, lost two people that they're Mm -hmm. very close to. Like, they haven't even processed any emotion from Max. And then for this to happen to Rebecca, they're obviously, like, oh, well, maybe she did take her own life to cover up. I mean, of course, their first thought is, like, Rebecca's responsible here. Yeah. Like, yeah. not not that she even maybe caused it, but why wasn't she monitoring? Well, it? and the you whole know, like, accident was so weird with Jonah. Right. Like, the whole thing was so weird and strange, and there were so many unanswered questions that then two days later you find out that she killed herself, and you're like, oh, there was something that she wasn't telling us. There was something that happened. That she wasn't telling us, and she's somehow responsible for his death. And I, yeah, that I could see that definitely being an immediate reaction. Right. But I, I like, also don't think that she did anything to him that caused 
his death either. The sheriff's office upheld their findings. Her official cause of death remains a suicide. And the Zahaus continue to fight that to this day. And that is the story of the mysterious death of Rebecca Zahau. Well, I will be up all night. (laughs) I really didn't think this was that kind of case for you. But like now that you've told it to me, do you see? Are you like, oh, mm, yeah. I guess if you're if. Yeah, I just. Big titty baby like Mogab. I guess if you're a big baby like Mogab, but I just think it's more the speculation, the like. Yeah, that's all very intriguing. What actually happened? And I. Asian? I don't know. Because I think that there are so many problems with every single theory. Like, there's a, there are Mm -hmm. so many problems with it being a suicide. There are so many problems with Adam being the one to kill her. And there are so many problems with, like, somebody else, a third unknown person being the one that killed her. Like, there's so many problems with each theory, and it's got to be one of those. Well, and I was about to say, like, is it possible that these two just aren't, the two deaths aren't linked in any way? But the note on the door tells us otherwise, you know? Yeah. I definitely think, and this was said in pretty much everything I watched and read, that if Max was still alive, Rebecca would still be alive, too. And I do agree with that. I don't think that Max has a random fall and then two days later, some random person comes and kills Rebecca. Yeah. And I think the note does kind of prove that. And also just, I mean, what are the odds? Like, all of it is like... Especially if it's a place that you have a $13 million home and you never think to have a security camera. Like, those aren't random people breaking in. Right. Yeah. like Like, nothing happens here. Right. Ah. So then two back to back. All right. Yeah. Okay. I see how this is not a nosy with the light on case. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for that. You were fired with a Y. Thank you so much for listening. We so appreciate all of you and we would love to hear from all of you. So we'd love it if you could find us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at CreepersPod. And you can also email us any feedback or case suggestions at creeperspod at gmail.com. Also, a little announcement. We are changing our Facebook page into a Facebook group. So if you haven't joined our Facebook group, please go do that. Me and Mogab are in there. And we would love to talk to you guys there. So yeah, thank you. can't wait for that. Yeah. And a big shouts to everyone who's left us a review on Apple Podcasts already. They really make our day. They're so fun. Kristen and I text each other about them, so please keep that going. It's really awesome. They're amazing. And we would love, if you haven't already, for you to give us a five-star rating and review, and be sure to subscribe to True Crime Creepers so you'll have our newest episode as soon as it drops, where Kristen will probably misrepresent how much she plans on scaring me. Bye, peeps and creeps. Bye.